in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Chad Robinson, and joining me today is my good friend and, at this point, permanent co-host, Dustin Melbardis. How are you doing, Dustin? I'm doing awesome. Yeah, we, we get put together. It's become a new a new twosome. It's a, you and I get, get uh, sometimes we get something special, and I think we do, we do have something special today. We have a guest. Yes, crossover guest. We love it over here at the round table. We have V from where's her oscar podcast please welcome v to the round table everybody v would you tell us about your podcast hi thank you for having me yeah so i uh, i'm one of the co-hosts of where's her oscar where we basically go through the filmographies of actresses that haven't won an academy award and we basically just see how close they came to winning one each episode we cover a different movie by the actress right now we're finishing up our amy adams season so we're just watching all of amy adams's movies and um yeah it's a lot of fun yeah it's great and honestly it's a bunch of movies that we haven't covered yet at the round table so check out the where's her oscar podcast check out the movies i've listened to enchanted julie and julia my wife made me watch that that movie uh she's a big julia childs fan we both like Amy Adams, so if you like Amy Adams movies, check out their season. They've got, what is it, 17, 18 episodes? Yeah, around that number. Okay, great. It took me too long to figure out that's what was going on. <laughs> uh, when, when, when V just said, it's our Amy Adams season, I'm like, oh, oh, that's why they're all Amy Adams movies. It took me, <laughs> when I say it took me too long, it's because you say it. You say that's what you're doing, and I guess I just wasn't paying close enough attention. I tuned in for the uh, the her episode, uh, which I which I dug, and then uh, the catch me if you can. So yeah, t- take a listen. I forgot she was even in that. Yeah, most people do. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. So what we like to do with our guests is we like to get to know you a little better. So you do a great job on your podcast of shining light on actresses that are deserving of an Oscar, but. We're going to toss you a really tough question here. What is your favorite best actress Oscar winning performance? Well, I thought really hard about this because I have a lot of actresses that I like that have won Oscars, but I always feel like they don't really win for their best performance per se. Leonardo Um, DiCaprio. I know it's an actor, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's really, it sort of sucks. But I think just above all, a movie that I love in its entirety and i think this performance is phenomenal is holly hunter and the piano i just think that it's like it's both career best work but it's also a critically acclaimed performance and she basically steamrolled that season and it's very oscar baity i will admit that it's very up (laughs) oscar's alley it's famously she doesn't speak a word in that entire movie which doesn't look great for the oscars but it's just just such a phenomenal performance and you know 
I, I love the piano. Um, I love seeing uh, movies helmed by female directors get critical acclaim and awards. So that would definitely be my pick. Excellent. Love Holly Hunter. So Dustin, going to kick this over to you. What's your favorite Best Actress Oscar winning performance? It's uh, it's Jennifer Lawrence in Silver Linings Playbook. Okay. And, uh, it, and it's something that before being involved in this podcast, I've always relished and felt lucky to see a movie without knowing any hype or knowing what it's good for, even what the plot could be. So when, when I jumped into this, I did not know what it could be. I think I maybe fall into the same category as V here is that I, maybe I wouldn't say it's her best performance, but as far as for this category of question, uh, that's where I have to go with. Yeah, I really liked her in Winter's Bone. For me, it's Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. I'm a, I'm a horror movie guy. I love, I'm from West Virginia, that she was portraying a West Virginia accent. Yeah, I, I love Clarice Starling, so Jodie Foster. V, what's the last movie you've seen? Well, uh, actually, just yesterday, um, I finally watched Thelma and Louise. Uh, oh, excellent. Gina Davis. Yeah. Yeah. It's been like a weird blind spot for me. Um, I'm, I have no idea why I haven't watched the movie earlier, but um, it's on Tubi streaming for free, which made it a lot easier. And <laughs> my friend's been on me to watch it. And I, you know, I finally bit the bullet per se. And I, I mean, I love the movie and I knew I would love it, like having heard everything about it. But I guess, I don't know. It's just, it's such a ride and it's difficult to talk about because it's the, <laughs> It's definitely a movie that you experience rather than, you know, think about. Yeah, and I th- I think I'm getting my years right. I think Gina Davis actually lost to Jodie Foster. I think those yeah. were the same years, Silence of the Lambs and Thelma and Louise. Mm-hmm. Dustin, what about you? What's your last movie? Uh, I, I have two options here, and both of them are rewatches. No surprise there. I, I, I listen to a lot of movie music. Uh, particularly when it is someone incredible like Danny Elfman or when it's uh, 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 Trevor Jones. I'm not really like the orchestral stuff like John Williams, but I was listening to the soundtrack from Labyrinth. Okay. And, I, and I'm and i just dancing around my house cleaning. And I'm like, you know what? Why, why just listen? So I turned the movie on and just fell back into that world of fantasy. Uh, it's it's probably one of my favorites. I don't I don't care if anybody thinks it's good or not. <laughs> it's 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 just a favorite of mine. So I, I got back into Labyrinth. I don't think you're going to have too many people hurling insults over a David Bowie movie. It, I saw that movie way too young. It creeps me out. I probably need to revisit it. Hey, it's a Jennifer Connelly movie, right? Yes. That's how we should look at this. It's a Jennifer Connelly movie. <laughs> and David Bowie's in it. Uh, so like that's, that's how I look at it. And then uh, Hoggle, of course, and Ludo. All the important uh, Muppeteers. Yes. Uh, man, I, I, I can't get enough of that of that era and that music. Well, speaking of childhoods, mine, Netflix just released the first Fear Street movie. And probably by the time this podcast airs, the second one will be out. I read these books when I was a teenager. It was a big part. You know, R.L. Stein is like a step up from Goosebumps. It's a step up. Yeah, I remember Fear Street being introduced like, oh, this is almost like more like YA literature now instead of just scary stories. Yes. Yeah. So 1994, that's part one. It's out on Netflix. Check it out. 
they try, there's some scream influence in there. There's some stranger things. There's a lot of kind of pop culture put in there. And it's nice seeing the old AOL chat rooms as well. <laughs> Although they did pick up the phone while he was on AOL and I was like, wait, no. And nothing happened. And no, there's no way. There's, there is no way you're getting bounced off that call yes. or you're losing your internet. Whatever, either one. It's immersion breaking. It's like you. You didn't have two phone lines. Maybe they did. Maybe they were rich. That's what happened. Are we showing? Are we showing how how broad we are nowadays? Because uh, we we brought up uh, a literature last time we podcasted together. Uh, I believe talking about the superb K. A. Applegate series Animorphs. So, yes. we, hey V, you've got some really well read couple of hosts for you today. Uh, maybe maybe we'll even talk about some of the. Some of the really obscure stuff like uh, Harry Potter or something. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of literature made into movies, Dustin, you want to introduce today's movie? Oh, sure. Yeah. And it I didn't know it was. It made the step from book to screenplay to movie. But we're covering To Die For. That's right. 1995's To Die For, starring Nicole Kidman, Joaquin Phoenix, Matt Dillon, Casey Affleck, Alina Douglas, Allison Follin, Dan Hedaya, and Wayne Knight Newman. It was re released, Newman. like I said, 1995. Amount grossed $21,284,000 in the theater. That's enough to finish 78th in the box office. So, kind of rough. Movies <laughs> that placed ahead of it. Po Il Postino, I am unfamiliar. And a movie that placed behind it. At, in the 79th place, Tales from the Crypt, Demon Knight. Wow. Uh, just, <laughs> just wow. The number one movie that year, we have heard of this. You've got a friend in me. It's Toy Story. IMDb gives this a 6.8. Rotten Tomatoes, the critics meter, gives it an 88%. The critics like it. Audience are a little cooler. They're at 65%. It wins no awards. So we have V on to talk about that from the Where's Her Oscar podcast. This movie wins no awards. We'll start with you, V. Had you seen this movie? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of this movie. I actually did not see it when it came out. I came to it way later. But when Big Little Eyes came out and suddenly I became obsessed with Nicole Kidman. And I was like, I have to go through this woman's filmography. And obviously the first thing I turned to were the, you know, best of Nicole Kidman lists. And this movie shows up at the top a lot. You know, it's a lot of people regard it as her best performance. It's It was seen as sort of her breakout role, even though she'd been working in the industry for a while before this. It was like the role that made people think, oh, she's not just Tom Cruise's wife. She's like an actual actress in her own right. So that this was, I think, the fourth time I've seen this movie. I just think it's like very rewatchable. There's... It's so full to the brim with all these like little quips and just mannerisms and like just these little parts that each time I watch, I find something new to talk about. I, I really love this movie. Awesome. Okay. So V says it holds up. Dustin, had you seen To Die For? No, no. And it's still just my favorite thing of being involved with this podcast is being introduced to movies that need to be seen. And this movie needs to be seen. So... As far as expectations of it, it's almost impossible to try to go into a movie while knowing nothing about it. Um, and so when this came across 
my my little ticker tape and it's like we're gonna do to die for from 95 like, Ooh, okay well and then, so shut off every other media p- potential way of seeing what this movie is about and just buy it turn it on and uh, go through it and it was quite the experience yeah i'm in the same boat i not only had not seen this i hadn't heard of it i'm honestly not the biggest nicole kidman fan i <gasps> i first saw her in stepford wives you know she's doing a intentionally wooden performance in that one but you know stuff like the others and i she's just not my favorite actress tom cruise certainly didn't help that time period although she got away <laughs> so she got away yes yes that's how i view her and katie holmes and they got away Please don't write me, Tom Cruise. The she was on a TV show, uh, something lies. Yeah, Big Little Lies. I can't, I can't see that title, Big Little Lies. What is that right, Big Little Lies? Yep. Without singing, uh, Fleetwood Mac's uh, "Sweet Little Lies." Yes. Tell me uh, lies. Tell me something. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, I, I think what for someone who was a movie star, and I think there's kind of like a Hollywood thing that there's a difference in the caliber of actors for TV and movies. Uh, kind of interesting watching this movie to to see that TV is the big goal. And I would say, aside from the incredible filmography of Nicole Kidman, it was probably that show, that Big Little Lies, that reinvigorated her popularity among uh, probably a, an additional generation of movie watchers. Yeah. Yeah, everyone wants the Jerry Seinfeld money. Like, you might have one big movie, but Jerry Seinfeld, he has, he doesn't have to work again. Yeah, you might have one B movie. Yeah, yeah, this... I, I was excited. It's a new movie. I do love when guests come on and culture us. Like, help help improve our podcast, make it a little more highbrow than where we, we tend to want to dwell sometimes. Sometimes we're dwelling in the cellar. Uh, if it were up to me, I would be doing Super Troopers. <laughs> if it were up to you, we were we'd be doing Tales of the Crypt, yes. uh, Ghost Ghoul Night, or whatever yeah, that thing was called. I have Demon never Night. Seen that, but I would absolutely do that. So yeah, this this was a great exposure, and it helps improve my image of Nicole Kidman. She did a fantastic job. I think I would agree that this is her best performance. I think the movie holds up. It's got some dated technology. We're not exactly popping in videotapes anymore. And, you know, the the clothing of the 90s is not flattering to most people. But, yeah, it's the themes in it becoming famous. We certainly have a lot of that with the TikTok, Instagram, whatever else culture of just trying to make it big. Now, instead of a journalist, you're trying to be an influencer, whatever. But there's there's a lot of things that I think translate well and just the obsession over fame. So I I like this, enjoyed the movie. It's very dark. And we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that plot discussion. Dustin's going to spoil the movie. So if you haven't if you haven't checked out To Die For, put us on pause. Go watch the movie. It's not that long. It's a good watch. You got three good endorsements. And we'll be back for Dustin to spoil the movie here in a couple of seconds. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. 
Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we miss, things we loved, and things we want to see again. Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals. Like you. And we're back. So final reminder, Dustin's about to spoil to die for. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Otherwise, Dustin... Can you tell us what To Die For is about? We open on a nice small town in New England, but tragedy strikes as young Larry Moretto has met his end. But people have to talk about this Suzanne Stone. We learn that even Larry, who could get any girl that he wanted, was unable to resist her, at least if you listen to it from his sister, Janice, anyway. He falls head over heels for her. Oh my gosh, he even sells his drum set in order to buy her a ring. Somehow, on a bartender's salary, he manages to buy them a duplex and a new car, and they begin their life together. Now, we start to see the drive from Suzanne, whose obsession with making it as a broadcaster steers her toward cold behavior and ex- extreme decisions. Merely following the advice of George Seagal, you gotta do what no one else will do to make it. Uh, she makes her nefarious choices. Her documentary subjects, Lydia and Jimmy, are similarly infatuated enough to be convinced to be accessories in her plot to kill her husband Larry. Well, what fate lies ahead for this mastermind? Well, as it turns out all along, one phone call to the mob and she is taken out, frozen with the fishes in a quick twist, as her determination takes her to an icy grave. Real feel-good story. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I mean, there's there's dancing and there's rock music at the end, so that tells me this is a triumphant, feel-good movie. Uh, speaking it. of rock music, I mean, this 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 Larry and his band, his his sick band, they're playing just the hottest rock tunes, like Susie Q. Hey, there's a tambourine going on. I'm down for it. Yeah. So there's a lot to talk about here with Suzanne Stone. V, can you? Can you tell us a little bit about this plot? What have we got going on here with Nicole Kidman just being super creepy? <laughs> Starts out <laughs> in these interviews and these tapes that we find out she's made. So interestingly enough, this is actually based on a true case. Um, yes. Of whose name is escaping me, but you know, of a I think it was a school teacher that did actually end up seducing her um, her student. And trying to kill her husband, which is a lot of, a lot, just at face value. And I think Gus Van Sant adds a, adds another layer by <laughs> making her the sort of ambitious, power-hungry, um, rising television reporter. It's not even like really a reporter, just like, a, I guess, a television personality. Yeah. Um, Weather girl at the time, yeah. Yeah, and it's really interesting because I think... Um, watching this now because I mean being on television as a sort of weather girl isn't the uh, the height of fame as it once was um, what <laughs> <laughs> and obviously you have Nicole Kidman who plays her almost as if she's like missing just basic empathy um, like it's not just blinding ambition that sort of causes her to do this she has absolutely no remorse 
of everyone that she uses. It's uh, almost psychopathic on a level. Um, yeah, definitely. She's these kids. We find out uh, Jimmy seems a little bit challenged, but Lydia has suffered some form of sexual abuse. She talks about her mom's boyfriend giving her oil in a really uncomfortable scene for her 12th birthday and then insisting on rubbing it on her. And there's a lot of just taking advantage of people that I think Suzanne believes are weak. Uh, She takes advantage of Wayne Knight, who basically says, I don't know how to say no to you. Like he keeps saying no and it doesn't work. And these teens as well. Yeah, it's uh, she is aggressive in getting what she wants. And with Larry as well, it's it's depressing Mm -hmm. seeing, Okay, she's married, but really this was a method for her to obtain financing to follow her dreams of being the next Connie Chung or. Yeah, not. Yeah, not Connie Povich, Connie Chung. Yes. Well, how I did not know that, by the way. I feel like that's something I've learned, or I've I've learned a dozen times, and always tend to forget. But uh, to V's point, uh, you know, your your television broadcasters aren't quite the same the stars uh, today that they were. Uh, I'd say when we were young, m- maybe like uh, you know Barbara Walters. You're talking about the big names, uh, Walter Cronkite. They, they were very important, but uh, gradually becoming less important. Um, unless you're tuned into only one station, and Tucker Carlson is uh, who you follow. But essentially, what I'm thinking about this is you're talking about the influence over these kids and calling it like a money-making scheme. It kind of, it took me a little bit. Maybe I'm just slow, but I also think that it, it's purposefully done to where, how soon did you realize that this was like an overarching plan of hers to do it this way? Uh, I, because I'm not, I'm not going to say that she like, Mr. Magood her way into this stuff, and we obviously know it was a plan, but uh, it was my first time watching. Chad, you said it was your first time watching too, right? Yep, right. And and V, there was a first time that you watched it. How long did it take you to realize that this was kind of the plan from the get-go? That was, it, it took me a little bit. Are we talking the murder or just the fame? I think it goes fame first, then murder. I, I think maybe in my in my head, I thought there was a way for her to, to have, to get the fame, and then eventually it got to the point to where maybe I thought maybe I was too optimistic here, but maybe I thought that if anything, Larry would be like a stepping stone, or or like maybe she could make it work, but. Um, I suppose the way the movie's framed in kind of this documentary style for like the first couple minutes and then you, you go back to like the story of it happening, I guess you know that it, it has to happen the way that it does, but I guess I was just slow on the take. Were you guys quicker than me? I think that's what you guys are trying to say. I, I think the conversation with Lydia, where Lydia is discussing having her mom's boyfriend killed, sets off a light for Suzanne and she's like oh really tell me more about this and that's where the murder came from but it's really it's tied to the fame like you're saying the conversation with Larry where he's talking about hey maybe quit your job it's really not producing a ton of income maybe start a family you know he's very old-fashioned traditional like that I should be taking care of you and you should be taking care of the kids and that's not at all what she wants and that's a great scene 
where mm-hmm. the light is slowly dimming and there's just a circle around Suzanne as Larry is spewing all these things like settle down, have a family, take care of the kids, quit your job, and just huh. it's being blocked out. Let's talk to our female guest about this that particular moment. <laughs> yeah, I think it's to your earlier point. I think, I mean, I didn't go into this movie completely blind. Obviously, I read the synopsis and um, I had friends who had watched it who had said that it was one of their favorite movies. So I had like a sort of an idea what the character of Suzanne Stone is like. So really, for me, from the opening shot, you, I just knew that the ambition is of her character is the defining trait and that she's i wasn't sure if she's willing to murder yet but i i knew that that would ultimately be her either her downfall or what lets her triumph and i do think it's interesting because i think this movie could be um in a in a less well-made movie it could have come out problematic to have you know your main ambitious female character who's also like a murderer you know She's, uh, I think, one of the few characters that doesn't, you know, have a family, isn't settling down, continues to work. But I think there's there's a few characters in the movie that sort of are foils to her. Obviously, uh, Ileana Douglas's character is a great foil. Um, she plays uh, she plays her sister-in-law. Janet? Yep. And I think it just, you, you get the sense that Suzanne isn't just like a normal normal ambitious woman she's there's something like deeply unsettling and you know sort of wrong with her uh for lack of a better term yeah she does have some barriers though some walls because in the beginning you know we learn later that she's just so ambitious she'll do almost anything but there's one of the scummy guys i can't remember if he's with a station or or what but he's he's a man with power who puts his hand on Suzanne's thigh, and it's clear there's an ind- indication of, oh, okay, we'll make this quid pro quo. You know, you do. Yeah, played by George Seagal. Yeah, I don't know if we ever learn his name, but he's he's like the speaker at the conference. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's like do something sexual for me, and I'll help you out. And by every indication, nothing happens. She doesn't do anything with him. So there, there is some line, obviously, it gets crossed later into kill husband. I don't know if the, the power craze of being on TV really fed into that delusion or what, but it seems like her ambition is healthy in the beginning, and she's able to reject poor offers like this and then just spirals out of control. Mm-hmm. I do not know about what goes on unseen in this situation on the honeymoon uh, I, I i do not know like is this a moment where the characters because the ambition is strong the whole time right we, we do know that but is this where the characters uh, tactics change after um after that meeting with with the george seagal character where he tells that story about uh about the woman that goes to new york that plants the fake letter in her briefcase first of all incredible story right awesome little storytelling moment and a well shot scene i think but then we get to this we get to this moment she doesn't get the story right away or does she and she's playing dumb what do you what do you guys think here because 
it it was only after revisiting the movie after watching it you know for the first time like revisiting thinking like how much of this is an act or is it so much so to where, where there is a naivety that that eventually leads to her own demise i would say it is that as genuine as anything else is that as real as anything else to where she has to learn this lesson from this creepsto yeah i i feel like i, I... When I first watched the movie, I thought that it was a play, that she was sort of pretending to be the naive to, you know, I don't know, yeah. be more approachable or just more open. But um, I've, I mean, I've read a lot about this movie. I've listened to podcast episodes and, you know, different interpretations. And I, I, I'm beginning to wonder if maybe she was just that naive and maybe she's, again, uh, I mean, I've mentioned before, there's obviously something not morally wrong but there is she seems to have a very gray moral character in the sense that obviously what she does after is um bad is <laughs> you know not oh you mean oh you mean the killing part <laughs> yeah <laughs> we, we want to establish um, at the round table murder is yeah. bad <laughs> <laughs> thank you i actually need to learn this lesson <laughs> thank you yeah it's 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 uh it's an interesting interpretation to think that she actually had no idea of what um of what the uh, sort of atmosphere and circumstances of this sort of job are. And there's some hints that she's not the brightest person um, <laughs> in the movie. Yeah. Um, I think about when I think they're at lunch. And I, I don't know if they're supposed to be in high school or college. And she's talking about the like Gorbachev's pimple. And she's like, I'm sure people would have liked much more if he just got rid of that thing on his forehead. And it's like... <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel like we were in Clueless for a moment. <laughs> she does that a couple of times. She mentions Canada's president. It's like they don't have a president. They have a prime minister. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So there is a there is a purposeful, because you have to think of like Van Zandt overseeing this, is that it, it, it's, it's purposeful, everything. There's no, I, there, I refuse to believe there's any mistakes or oversights here. No. That so so the idea that um, he tells the story. I'm I'm still back at that table, but I mean I, I'm just for the moment. He tells that story and she says, "Who wrote it?" Oh, she, uh, she doesn't get it. Yeah. N now the, there's there's two different things going on here. There's the the guy orders another round of drinks for the table, and she, um, I you know I sometimes watch with subtitles on, and it like in parentheses giggles like, huh, I guess I'll have another one. But like, so there's, there's a certain amount of just like, that could be the act, right? Like that could be the act of, oh, sure. I'll take another one. You, boy, you're really, you're, you're really influencing me, mister. But then there's also the part that I think is not the act, which is the, almost the daftness, the, uh, maybe a little bit of dim-wittedness of, of, um, the lacking of social tact of telling Janice, you might be better off if you were to go get some plastic surgery on your face. Yeah. Like just I, like, like there's, there is a for certain characteristic of her, a, a, a personality trait that sometimes she just says the wrong things because she's, she, she didn't put any tact into it. But yeah, yeah. I, I, when, when I kind of think about this movie and, and try to use my mind to figure out what's the act, what's not. And, could somebody of this, we'll say, intellect level, like, get through this whole plan, like the plot shows us that happens, 
And the answer is yes, but I think that's what makes this movie so much more compelling. I think Yeah. I think there's some satire basically just from a woman's perspective in Hollywood. She's saying all the things that are just awful, but they have been said to probably the majority of actresses in Hollywood. We've had several where they've said, oh, they're just not pretty enough for this role, or they don't have this, or they don't have that. I'm a wrestling fan, and one of one of the best female wrestlers, her name's Mickey James, she couldn't get a shot in the company until one of the male wrestlers says, they're not going to pay attention to you until you get a boob job. She did. She became a famous wrestler. That's a sad story for her, but, you know, I feel like they're using Suzanne Stone as a mirror for Hollywood, for the television industry as well, of just saying, you've got to get this fixed. You've got to get this fixed while you don't look like this. And it's awful, but it happens. Right. Yeah. It's, it's a, it is a peek behind. Uh, it is, it is exactly what you probably expect. If you had to draw or if you had to imagine like a sleazeball executive and the things that they're looking for, the things they would say or the things they would want, it's laid out for you in this movie. Like you, you need to be pretty, uh, and you need to be just dumb enough to say yes to the wrong things. And they definitely mm-hmm. implied Barbara Walters was good at or or <laughs> did they not? Yeah. Like that's who they were going for, Bob Barbara Walters. I, I I would I would have to say so. Yeah, that just again that guy was a scumbag. That was just a creepy, creepy conversation. There's a lot of creepy things happening here with Suzanne dancing with Jimmy. Yeah, that's that's a that is a tough scene. I don't know how she did that. I my notes just simple. It's like, man, don't have sex with high schoolers. Just don't do this. Now that's a lesson I already knew. So there we go. But <laughs> uh, I, I, I will say, like that, the, I'd love to talk about that scene. I'd love to talk about some of the things in this movie that are uncomfortable. I could do it now. Do it later. I think in terms in terms of the plot, we're still talking about like how we're getting to where we're going. So she she makes this turn towards yeah uh, like like the 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 plan. At first, it's just the ambition, and then it turns to murder. But I think it was that scene. It, it that that is one of the scenes. Before it, there's another one. I'm I'm thinking of two in my head right now. That scene where she's got a she's got the video camera on her shoulder. She's got a glass of wine in the other. Alcohol abuse is not a part of this movie at all. Not, 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 it does not factor in at all because it's not really abused. It is just used. But uh, so she's got a glass of wine and she's got the camcorder and, and Jimmy's dancing or James is dancing, depending on how you want to make him feel, is, is, is dancing. And, and Joaquin Phoenix as a teenager is really nailing this uh, yeah. aw- awkwardness. And then you've got Lydia. Tell me that's right. Lydia? Yes. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Uh, who's trying to dance, but she's feeling awkward, so she just sits down. Like, that is, I, I don't know how many movies really get it right with teenage uh, awkwardness and angst, but that scene is when I kind of leaned forward, and I was like, okay, this is where, like, for the, so far the movie had been, what's happening here? What is going to happen? How are we going to get to this frame story about a dead body? Okay, I kind of see where we're going. It's it's going to be a, a hit job, and she lures the kids. That's easy. What's fun is Gus Van Zant. what does he get to play with that making you uncomfortable with this dance scene in the living room? Or what's real and what's not? 
I believe it was, you know, minutes earlier is when you get to see during one of her weather broadcasts and Jimmy's lying there, I think shirtless watching it. And, um, without any type of special effects, without any type of like cut, she goes from her weather report to suddenly like talking to Jimmy and we're together and I'm taking my clothes off. And like, it's at that point, you're like, okay, that's not real. But now we realize that the filmmaker is messing with us a little bit, right? That he, he's, he's showing us something that now we don't, now our expectations are blown wide open because we don't really know when something else is going to be real or not, or when it's going to be what only what Jimmy wants to hear, or maybe only what, maybe only what Suzanne sees or hears, which we see later in the movie. Uh, that scene that, the yeah, absolutely uncomfortable scene, but that's, that's what makes a movie like this just so good to me. Yeah. V, what did you think about the interactions with these, uh, Wayne Knight's character calls them high school losers. Yeah, and I th- I think the cast the casting choices here are, like phenomenal. Um, and I just sort of wanted to bring that up because uh, Nicole Kidman first of all like begged for this role essentially from Gus Van Sant. Like it, like there was a long list of actresses that were considered for horror: Jennifer Jason Leigh, Meg Ryan, Sharon Stone, like a whole list. And she was like, "This role was made for me." And so she gets the role, and then they go through the initial round of casting and. They're immediately drawn to Joaquin Phoenix, but I think the producers of the movie didn't want him for the role because when you think of like a high school boy in a movie, you don't really think of Joaquin Phoenix, especially in this role where he's like grungy and sort of, you know, odd looking, like no offense to him, but he looks sort of really not what you imagine. No, no, don't hold back. No, no, V, don't hold back. If you can say no offense to him and then say the truth and it counts. So, so, so don't hold back here. Yeah, he just, he looks sort of terrible. And so they yes. wouldn't cast him. And <laughs> Nicole Kidman threatened to leave the project because she wanted him so desperately in that role. And he, yeah, he has this like awkwardness and he plays this character of someone who's like, again, another character who's like not completely there when he's, um when he's talking about Suzanne and when he's in jail and he's sort of talking about how he used to think about her all the time. And he starts talking about zombies and how he's become like a zombie for her. And he's going through this like huge, like long meandering allegory. And he's really selling the fact that he believes it. Again, there's nothing that in the actual frame or in the actual, uh, there's no special effects that make it seem like he's stupider than he seems. This is all just Joaquin Phoenix's performance. That's like, oh, this guy doesn't really get it. He still doesn't really get that Suzanne was using him. He still thinks that they have some sort of, you know, romantic connection. And then the girl who plays Lydia, who hasn't really done much after this, um, it's really funny. There's a huge oral history of this movie that came out, I think, uh, two years ago for its 20th anniversary. Oh, not two years ago, like five years ago for its 20th anniversary. And um, she showed up to her audition and the casting director was like, oh my God, you dressed up for the role. Like, how phenomenal. And she was just like, these are just the clothes I went to school in. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And I think it's just the high schoolers, I don't think they're, I think they were all a little older than the ages that they're portraying, but it, it get, they get this sort of, there's this awkwardness and there's this just vulnerability from these quote unquote like tough kids, you know, wrong cut of the tracks, you know, the kids that she's trying to save with her little video program. 
V, I cannot, I cannot believe that you just revealed that Hollywood secret. We're going to have the Hollywood police show up. Are you telling me that these high school kids are played not by high school aged people? <laughs> okay, no, we need to scrub. Chad, we need to scrub this. There's no. It still, it still blows my mind that Jamie Lee Curtis was the only teenager in Halloween. Like, Jamie Lee Curtis has always looked like six, seven years older than what she actually is. But yeah, V V covered it pretty well, and you mentioned some fun things here. We like talking about alternate casting. Uh, Meg Ryan wanted $5 million to do this role. Nicole Kidman, she wanted two. So $3 million savings there. Meg Ryan would have turned it down anyways. But what do you think about putting Meg Ryan in this role? I can't do it. I can't do it. Yeah, it's and so when when we, the alternate casting or like what could have been, it's, it's difficult to undo something that's been done. And I think it's because, could I see Meg Ryan in Stepford Wives? Yeah. Could I see Meg Ryan here? I don't think so. Yeah, how about you, V? Yeah, it's interesting because I think this sort of image of this, you know, ambitious, power-hungry uh, woman, I guess, for um, it gets sort of attached to Nicole Kidman after this movie. It was always sort of there, uh, even before this movie, because obviously, you know, she marries Tom Cruise and people are like, Tom Cruise might be gay, so she might just be doing this for to get higher up in Hollywood. Like, there's a sort of image that Nicole Kidman has in the 90s, especially, that's just like, she's willing to do anything to get ahead. And it just is exacerbated by this movie. And I think having someone like Meg Ryan, Meg Ryan doesn't really play into that character, you know, in her neither her previous roles nor of her public perception. Whereas Nicole Kidman, she's sort of like, the prime material for a character like this you know she's sort of a bit aloof a little bit distant from everyone around her she gets the the persona of being a cold and icy persona a lot and i think in that sense she's almost like the dream actress yeah, to play a role like this i think like you're this. right it's it's almost it's it's almost perfect I, I i think you're right and she does have that doesn't she this kind of mystique yeah to to you to use Jimmy's words is I think you would say this about Nicole Kidman I think you would say this about Suzanne Stone but Jimmy's words that uh, never has a word like this been used and and had so much different feeling to it but when he says ah she's my girl's not like that she's just so clean Mm. ooh and and yeah it's a special type of clean V hit the words exactly for me of icy and cold if I think of an actress for icy and cold, it's Nicole Kidman. She just has a very stern expression. I think a lot of it is also credit to her height. She's tall. She's imposing. So when she's standing and she does this stern expression and she can switch it on and off, it's very threatening. Mm-hmm. And I almost think of it as a praying mantis type character where she's hmm. just you know, preying on these on these people. So, yeah. We've done Meg Ryan movies before, and I don't, I don't see it. I think you do need that ice in the veins, like can switch on and off. So I can't imagine anyone but Nicole Kidman in this, and she did a marvelous job. Uh, Casey Affleck, he, this was his feature film debut, but he beats out Big Brother Ben Affleck and also his buddy Matt Damon. Thank Russell. God. <laughs> oh, 
I like Matt Damon, but he he helps his big brother out. So he hands the script for Goodwill Hunting to Gus. Says, "Hey, you got me. You didn't get my brother, but can you help him out with this script?" They win an Oscar. So it worked out for everyone. Good for Casey mm-hmm. Affleck, good for Ben, good for Matt Damon. Dustin, you've kind of weighed in. You don't want Matt Damon as Russell Hines? Well, uh, you, if the question is, where's her Oscar? Well, well for, for Nicole, or I guess we should say Nicole. For Nicole, her Oscar came with the hours, right? right. Mm-hmm. F- f- for, and then we got Casey Affleck, who gets his with Manchester by the Sea. Mm-hmm. And we get Joaquin Phoenix, who gets his uh with a joke hair and, and so like there's this is a this movie is a breeding ground for people that will win awards even though this movie got no nominations mm-hmm. i'm not saying thank god because it wasn't matt damon i'm saying give me more casey affleck i've, I've always been a fan i don't seek out his movies but when i see him i love him uh another guy who i do not seek out but when he nails a role i'm i'm thrilled is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, or uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Just the, the idea of, of these guys that, like, th- there's there's some type of hype, and I ignore it. But when I see it, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, I see it. I'm, I'm, I'm happy about it. De- definitely, I think it's not just their looks. Chad, you and I, we talked about how Matthew Lillard killed it in Scream. Yes. Right? Both Boom, all... Th- yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Unintended. Uh, the the three teenagers in this movie really really kill it. Lydia, Allison Folland, uh, which as V said is wasn't in much else. I didn't look up anything else she was in, uh, but she she was incredible at playing. All three of them really put care into their delivery of lines and their method of speaking, particularly Joaquin. Uh, I think Casey's was the most natural affect, kind of joking. He could be a little louder, more brazen, but both Lydia and James slash Jimmy, they have to kind of struggle to let the words escape from their mouth in a shy way. They dress kind of like punks, but we all know that kids, kids that kids that are like showing out, it's it's a it's a method, it's a it's a tool that kids in the, in the situations can still be. When there's an adult around, kind of put in their place, or they can be shy, or they may not want to say something. All, all of them really nailed it. Yeah. And V, I'll, I'll toss the alternate casting for Janice, who was a favorite character of mine to you. See what you think. We've got Sandra Bullock, Ellen DeGeneres, Janine Garofalo, Terry Hatcher, and Jennifer Tilly. Those were among the names considered for Janice. That's, wow. <laughs> they really had... I just feel like they had no idea what they wanted to do with the character. <laughs> um, yep. This would be a very different character if Ellen DeGeneres got it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's because I think um, Ileana Douglas, and she plays it very grounded, you know? She's like everything that Suzanne Stone isn't. You know, she's ambitious. She's a figure skater. She wants to, you know, I think she's um, touring, I think. is I don't mm-hmm. really understand figure skating as a sport. But um, she... There's a big uh, rock, you slide it, and then the two guys with brooms uh, sweep in front of it, and it lands in a circle, and then that's a that's a bullseye. Yes. But she's like, but she's doing everything like how rational people do it, you know? She's just working her way up. She's putting the work in. She's trying to just get to where she wants to be. Where and she like clocks 
uh, Suzanne Stone's sort of shtick, like, very quickly. She knows, like, oh, yeah. from the second yep. that she sees her, that this, this girl is, like, bad news. I don't know. Having, like, her humor is so different from, I think, not the humor from the rest of the movie, but from the tone of why Suzanne Stone is funny. Because, you know, Janice is, like, quippy. She's sort of, she's grounded. She's, uh, she's sarcastic. There's this certain sense of realness that I think the movie needs because everyone else, Suzanne Stone, all the other characters are sort of disillusioned either by her or in their own little worlds. Whereas Janice is like the real grounding sort of linchpin in the movie where it's like people can see through this. It's just it's just Suzanne Stone's sheer luck that she wasn't caught until she was. Yeah, I think depicting a mobster's daughter like the the manner of speaking is exactly how I would match up with someone that's raised in that background. So it, it would be difficult to associate that with someone more like Sandra Bullock. I think she would have a tough time yeah. with that matter of fact speaking of just, yeah, she did a great job. Uh, let's talk about our director for a minute. I'll be honest, Gus Van Sant, he's our director. I have seen other than Goodwill Hunting and now this movie, I'm out. Um, he gets a start with Mela Noche, uh, Mala Noche. Dustin can correct me there. His last movie was Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. I have seen his music videos. We we mentioned Bowie earlier. He's got Fame 90, uh, Under the Bridge, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Creep by Stone Temple Pilots. I've seen those, but yeah. Uh, I haven't seen the the bigger ones, Milk, Finding Forrester, even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Yep, I'm out on these. So are you guys more familiar with Gus Van Sant? For me, Gus Van Sant is a director that I've been I've been meaning to get into mo- more of his movies because I, I love Good Will Hunting and I liked Milk and obviously I love To Die For. He has sort of, he's sort of a big name director um, and he's very, you know, Good Will Hunting was a huge box office success and he has sort of widespread appeal but in a very real sense he feels more of an auteur um and this movie is like especially like very uh it's not art house in any sense but it has these sort of higher end art higher level um not filmmaking techniques but narrative techniques and i've seen uh, my own private idaho which i it's a movie that i mean i liked a lot of people love that movie it has sort of a cult following online and then it's something like I'm also sort of intrigued by him as a person because he makes, you know, he remakes Psycho. It's a shot-for-shot remake. And when asked about it, he says that I made it so that no one else would. So that no one else would try to make a shot-for-shot remake of Psycho. It's it's interesting how he picks projects and just the sort of projects that he's drawn to because it's, it's a very varied filmography. You know, you have stuff that's, you know, sort of rote and meant to appeal for the masses then then you have stuff that's just very esoteric i i'm i missed a trivia question about my own private idaho like two nights ago and that bugged me i i, I couldn't remember river phoenix or something i don't remember what it was but with i think with gus van sant for for me uh, there's a whole bunch of these i have not seen uh but i think he's got to the point with his name and with the type of people that are into what he does that when he makes a choice that this is what i want to do with this movie He's he's reached that level where it's not questioned anymore. Where if he wants to do it this way, uh, trust Gus, uh, and and that's that's helpful for us, the audience, because this movie with a different director 
and with Jennifer Tilly as Janice and Sandra, or, or you know, or it, like th- this movie is not the same. And so I, I think he's got, I, I wouldn't be able to put it into words, but the, the touch that's on this movie is something that uh, we're lucky that he had his hands involved uh, as opposed to, as opposed to someone else. Uh, I, there are directors that are popular and I can't nail down a style. And so when it comes to this movie, we maybe just the three of us right now, we didn't talk about the plot that long before we started talking about like the themes and the, the non-plot factors of this film. And I think that's, that's a credit to Van Sant for making it an experience beyond just the story that happens. I think Stephen King was the guy who said, uh, plot is the crutch of the weak writer. This movie is not about the plot movies about the 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 experience the 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 wild switches the quick cuts lucky guy to be friends with danny elfman because i can spot a danny elfman soundtrack from a mile away (laughs) and and uh this so there's a there's a lot here that was just a joy as watching a film not watching a story well speaking of stephen king this is a adapted book about murder in a New England town. Yeah, he knows a little bit about that. <laughs> I feel bad for New England. Like that's the worst place to be if you're ever going to have a story written about you. It's a small <laughs> New England town. You're going to die. Bad things are going to happen. Spooky things are going to happen. Set in the late 90s. I didn't really see anything about the set designer location. You guys chime in. Very 90s bright colors for wardrobes. We've got our pants suits. We've got the the fun bright sweaters. This is something that I want to talk about. Dustin and I typically agree to just skip over it. The cinematography, the special effects, the lighting. But in this movie, I think Gus Van Sant does such a good job. And there's so many unique things going on that I just want a chance to highlight it. There's a scene with Lydia where she's describing potentially killing her mom's boyfriend and the camera starts to spin and you start seeing it as like a reflection of Suzanne's thoughts when she's doing her interview Jimmy had used the word clean for her and these interview tapes it's a bright white background it's a very sterile background and even in the scene we talked about earlier where Larry's talking about quitting her job and you just see this very focused circle go in on Suzanne and everything else is being blocked out and there's some cool other things too the interview segments with the family where it's a transition from this taped grainy tv look to kind of a live look I thought those were cool touches that they actually put in in this movie shout out to Kurtwood Smith Red Foreman in that 70s (laughs) show I kind of wanted more from him. I wanted him to be a little meaner in this. But he does make the joke of "Ah, maybe they're mobsters or something. And then he looks over. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, well, there's a moment. There's a filmmaking moment there early where that I, I, I made a little note of that moment where, oh, maybe you're involved in the in the mafia. No offense. And, and um, Moretti. Oh, am I getting yes. the name wrong? Moretto. Moretto. Not Moretti. Sorry. When Joe Moretto's like, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. And you get a quick cut yeah. to that barn, that white painted barn on the frozen lake. And you hear a scream and it takes a second, maybe two. And then flashback to Sally, Jesse, Raphael or whatever show they're on. That was just uh, chef's kiss. Just like, 
Oh, we're in I, I, every time you watch it when you watch a new movie, there's that moment where you realize, oh, I'm in for something here. And that's I think that moment was when I was like, ooh, ooh, what's this going to be? And we get we get such a payoff with that, don't we? Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to quickly say this movie allegedly has the Guinness World Record at the time for most wardrobe changes in a movie. Wow. With Suzanne Stone. Because she has that, there's that little montage where she's just bringing these, like, I guess they're like pitches to their local other station. Her idea file. Yeah. So she has, I mean, we've briefly mentioned that the outfits in this are not the best, but I think they really just went crazy with her outfits. Yeah. I, she knows. She knows that those wardrobe choices are meant to have her stand out in an otherwise drab world. Mm-hmm. And. Not not in the most chic way, sure, we'll say. They they are brazen in their uh, how much they stand out. Uh, and But it is, I, I guess I'm not, I, maybe I'm not surprised that little fact he gave us about the most costume changes because, you know, what she's seen in is so important to her, to her image and, and her ambition. I believe uh, we have, uh, I mean, the reference isn't necessarily dated, but we talk about icons, uh, like she mentioned uh, Princess Di, right? And this is a year before that tragedy. Or at least, yeah, it comes out, it comes out then. So I guess filmed probably two years before that tragedy. But um, like, like, as far as what you need to be seen in, uh, whether it's tabloids or Instagram or whatever, you know, image platform out there is you know, what, what these people are wearing on a daily basis she's never seen in tank top yoga pants right um i remember something like 2003 i remember it being like headline news of britney spears going to a gas station bathroom and she's barefoot because she's like wearing like jeans and a tank top and she's walking to like a like her and kevin federline are getting gas and like this was like a big deal to see her not in her, like not in her. Uh, I mean, Nicole Kidman's character, uh, Suzanne says it in the movie. Like, I got to get up and put my face on. Like that's something my mom said. That's something women said. Like, I if I'm going to be seen, um, then I need to be seen. Uh, you know, in in this particular image. I I think that uh, we're more used to people being uh, like presenting themselves as normal or like what they wear at home or when people go to class not wearing makeup or wearing the same basketball shorts eight days in a row or whatever like like that that's not quite the same as it was 30 years ago yeah she needs to be seen in those outfits oddly specific number from dustin so (laughs) make your assumptions there yeah it's hey man i don't wear basketball shorts anymore for me it's all about hot boy summer my inseams are seven inches or five inches man i'm not wearing basketball shorts no more (laughs) it's i almost got shades of legally blonde in here where she's wearing the the pink pantsuit and she's got i still love the description of the dog it's like a demon coughed up a hairball or something a demon from <laughs> hell, hell coughed up a hairball it's a pomeranian she's carrying around a pomeranian and it's not a chihuahua like paris hilton and reese witherspoon in the legally blonde movie or paris hilton in just real life we're carrying around with this dog as an accessory and yeah i i wonder if those movies kind of drew off of this character because i feel like particularly 
Reese Witherspoon's character looked a lot like Suzanne Stone in the pink pantsuit with the little dog. Give give me Suzanne Stone in this, if this is a face-off. Give me the person that is a little off. Give me the person that's damaged. Give me the person with the character flaws and the the ambition that leads you to, I think it might have been said earlier, morally gray. No, to make the... the the evil decisions. Give, give me that person. Uh, I I think there's probably, in terms of how the movie ends, uh, which does end maybe abruptly. Not, that might not be the right way of putting it, but the, the way that it ends is quick based on the pace of the rest of the movie. With, with I, I like the idea that there isn't like a... Uh, oh, I realize I'm about to spoil another movie, so I'll, I'll, I'll hold off. There isn't a happy ending for her. Yes. I think audience wouldn't have liked that. I, I, I'll use a different phrase. Audiences would not like a Kaiser Soze situation here. I guess if if that's fair to say, that's they don't want that. So I I do I I think like this the way this movie wraps up is is well done. I I, I wanted to say to Chad when you when you brought up the cinematography. Yeah, we usually our our eyes are looking elsewhere usually, but uh, when you said this is a dark movie. It's almost as if it doesn't start off quite that dark right away. It's almost as if, and Van Sant does this with lighting in the movie, that gradually over time, it's like one of those automated sunsetter awnings that like the shade comes over the movie and then stays, and then you're in the dark, and you're yeah. in the weird, and you're in the unsettled feeling. And that shade comes over, oh, gosh, what a, what a great little moment when she walks in the middle of her living room and does a little twist, and it's almost as if time goes forward like three or four hours. Do you guys remember this scene? Yeah. She just yeah. does a twist in her living room, and then all of a sudden things go dark. And it's like, like you said earlier, she can turn it on or off. Because she is a cold ice queen that she, that, that, that she can turn on, or sorry, that, that like in like neutral. And then she can turn on the... Sweet Home Alabama playing, dancing in the rain in front of the car, just laughing and twirling and spinning and having fun. And uh, like that's the that's the face she's putting on. That's the trick. Um, and uh, also as a bonus, we get a, a great like 10 to 15 seconds of just Joaquin Phoenix's face acting, which V, I know you love because I listened to your Her episode. <laughs> It's interesting that you mentioned that she has an ultimately a tragic ending because I think this movie inspired three big performances. Reese Witherspoon in Election, Rosamund Pike in Gone Girl, and Charlize Theron in Young Adult. And, I mean, Charlize Theron in Young Adult, you can, you can make a claim on whether it's a triumphant or tragic ending. But both Election and Gone Girl, they're not, they're not tragic for the main character, you know? Right. That main character triumphs they get what they want and i think that's an interesting shift even just like four years after this movie comes out to have that decision to have him um or have suzanne stone ultimately pay the price for what she does i don't know how i want to say it whether i'm just whether it's surprised i'm so happy or it's just a credible coincidence i was going to bring up election as well that the the reese witherspoon character in election and i i love it when in both of these movies you can see in silence and um, unmoving, like, very subtle acting of 
when that character is reaching a point of decision or like a breaking point, or you can see the gears turning in the head. Uh, you, you saw that a lot with Reese in Election, but in, in this movie, uh, especially when, when Janice is getting a little bit of attention about her ice skating review and she might be on TV, and, and Suzanne is sitting there, they're in their little parlor, and Suzanne, Suzanne's sitting there and clearly just seething that the attention isn't on her. Uh, it's it's just another, another testament to like subtle acting. Uh, a reason why Nicole Kidman deserves credit for this role for her performance. Yeah, Dustin, you've mentioned quite a bit. Danny Elfman did the soundtrack for this movie. I thought he did a good job hitting eerie notes. But we've also got some weird music thrown in here. We've got thrash metal. We've got you mentioned Sweet Home Alabama. The end song is Season of the Witch. Mm-hmm. So what do we think? V, I'll start with you. What do you think about the soundtrack of this movie? I really like the soundtrack. I think it adds a certain level of camp to the movie. Like, because the rest of it, you're like, I. it's sort of difficult to tell if the character of Suzanne Stone is, or the movie itself is trying to be tongue-in-cheek or if they're playing it straight. But I think the soundtrack really cements the fact that Gus Van Sant, like, this is a satire to me, at least. You know, it's very obvious. Because um, uh, I think about, like, her playing Wings of Desire yes. when she's dancing with the high schoolers in her living room. And it's such, a, it's such a weird needle drop and just a weird song to play for, like, what are supposed to be 16 and 17-year-olds. And it, it adds, like, such a... You get the vibe that there's something really, really off. And if you... if I didn't yeah. go into this movie completely blind, but as soon as... You start hearing that you're like, "Where is this? <laughs> What's the? What plan? is she doing? Yeah. Oh, I, I got I got the same feeling at the funeral when she puts the boombox on the grave and yeah. starts playing um, a too often uncredited Eric Carmen's incredible song all by myself. It's making it about her, and 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 like you get a couple seconds where it's like, "Oh, this is weird," but then we are so lucky to see. Like an additional 10 seconds of just like pan over to the priest who's just staring at her in dis- disbelief. I cannot believe you're doing that. Oh, yeah. Th- th- those little like peppering in those those music choices. Re- really incredible to be like kind of jars you out of. It's like if we're on a ride, this is a bump in the ride. Like, wow, that's weird. Oh, yeah. I forget. <laughs> this chick's weird. <laughs> and. Danny does a great job during the interview scenes, especially with Suzanne. It's busy. There's a lot of strings plucking and things like that that in the background to elicit Mm -hmm. almost panic. There's a mania going on and a lot of her very sterile interviews where she's just giving you this cold smile, but you hear in the background, and I wrote down very early, it's like, Danny Elfman's doing a good job of making me nervous for no good reason. Like, there's no reason in the scene where she's just talking to a camera that you should be nervous. But he's telling you, mm, something's not right. There's a way that he, that plucking strings can make you feel as if a spider's walking across a web. Yes. There are, there are ways. He, he does these falling... It makes me sad that Nathan's not on this episode. But you know what? No, it doesn't. Because otherwise <laughs> it'd be 30 minutes longer if we're going to go Danny Elfman stuff. But these these falling these falling violin type of um, uh, movements and where 
it, it is busy and it does make you realize that like thing, things are like thing, things are happening. This isn't just pleasant. Uh, it brought to mind three different other soundtracks of his that did similar things. Uh, first being Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Uh, once again, New England area. I think he does a good job of like setting up like this is kind of the morning time like things are pleasant and clean and can move quickly to rush. We're rushing towards something strange. Uh, it also this was uh, five years after Edward Scissorhands came out. Once again, another like things are a bit off behind him. But I think the one that was strangest to me was not a Tim Burton related movie. But actually, Sam Raimi, uh, he did the movie for he did the music for two of the Spider Mans, and for Spider Man Two, there's a particular suite played for Doctor Octopus that is, um, it, it is, it, it it's like a turbine or a piston going up and down, and it, and it is uh, it's almost like me- like mechanic or like a, a train going off the rails, and you get that in this movie. Yeah, yeah, he did a great job. So now we're going to go into our favorite part of the podcast. Are yes. you guys ready to hand out some superlatives? Of course. We're very excited. So we'll start with our MVP. It can be a director, actor, supporting actor. I think this one's going to trend in a certain direction. But V, we'll start with you. Who is your MVP of To Die For? Well, I mean, if you guys have listened to the podcast, I don't think it's that surprising. But for me, it has to be Nicole Kidman. Um I think she is like this is like in some senses a Nicole Kidman vehicle. She is she, not carrying this movie, but she is what makes this movie like intrinsically work. She is Suzanne Stone, and she encapsulates what that character is. And she's in like every single movement that she does, every the way she looks, the way um she says certain things, certain phrases. It's all just like in complete service to the movie. And I think this movie would not be remembered the way it was if it wasn't for her performance. Yeah, that's a great pick. Dustin, who do you have as your MVP? I would have responded with more uh, emphasis when you asked if we were ready. I just didn't want to drown out V. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I'm ready for superlatives. Here's my MVP. <laughs> it's it's Gus Van Sant. Uh, I, I, this, uh, I, I don't normally pick directors, but uh, when you can experience a movie like this. We talked about some of his cuts. We talked about the decisions with lighting. Sometimes you get something that is sometimes like so innocuous, like uh, when, when we see Russell, the character, get knocked down into the ocean by his dad or uncle. Yeah. When they're doing that, whatever job that is, sorry, I'm not a East Coast like fisherman, but whatever they're doing with those buckets in the ocean... You get like a three second cut of him, like of his dad, like knocking him down, like oh he's got a bad light, and but like th- this was all part of his vision for the movie, and uh, so hats off to him, uh, and not not taking away from the other incredible performances. I would say my top two performances are are from females in this movie, uh, N- Nicole Kidman and and Allison Fallen. but it's it really I think Gus Van Sant put together something magical for us. Excellent, hard hard to argue. I went. V's direction though Nicole Kidman I just kind of put who else like even when the author whose name escapes me and I I apologize was describing Suzanne Stone and who would play them I described him as well I think of them like 
the woman that's married to Tom Cruise. Didn't say Nicole Kidman, but said the woman that's married to Tom Cruise. Hmm. So Nicole Kidman obviously fit her own image, but then she brought this just terrible level. And I mean that in the best way possible. (laughs) Like she's just a terrible, terrible, terrible human being throughout this movie. And she plays it with almost such delight that it's just unsettling. So Nicole Kidman, this was a wonderful acting performance. I'm stunned you didn't get nominated. V can uh, V can cover this. Well, uh, she has her Oscar, but uh, if you ever do an Injustices episode, this could be one. Right, best supporting actor V. This one is a tough one because I think the, just a whole cast of great supporting performances. But I think it sort of has to go to Joaquin Phoenix because I think it's. You know, it doesn't seem like much when you first watch the movie, but once it gets, settles in, he's giving a really tough performance because you have to you have to think of him as a guy that's capable of murder, right? But also a guy that's so stupid that he can't see through uh, Nicole's, or no good, Suzanne's plan. It's just, you know, he's sort oh, of it, pathetic. It's seeping he's... into the real world. You called it Nicole's plan <laughs> yeah. and not Suzanne's plan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's just... You, you don't want to be on his side, but you can. You just feel for the guy on a certain level, just because he's sort of got him, gotten himself into a situation that he's just so in over his head. Joaquin Phoenix plays it just so earnestly, uh, and so just genuinely almost that it's it's difficult to it's difficult to feel to really hate him in a sense, but you're also like, wow, this guy, like he. Someone should have stopped this before it went this far. Yeah. Well, the Oscar-nominated Tropic Thunder covered the difficulty of characters like this in Forrest <laughs> Gump. He did, a, he did a great job in this, and Ben Stiller did not. So, so, so Dustin, who is your best supporting actor? All right. Welcome to Where Is Her Movie Superlative. Um, and I'm the one doing doling out the justice here because it is going... <laughs> To Allison Folland uh, for playing Lydia, an, an incredible performance. Nothing taken away from what Joaquin can do, but Joaquin's being cast, and he's winning Oscars. Uh, it is unlikely we're ever going to see this Allison Folland again. And what she did in this movie, uh, whether it's uh, the, the wardrobe that she showed up in, uh, a great iconic look when she's walking the dog in that red leather jacket. Um, she's trepidatious. She's scared. She's anxious. She's playing teenagers like we know they were and we know that you, you that, that, that they are. Um, it, it was just so well done. I, I love that she's got this combination of admiration and not cluelessness, but just her, her own. I, I, it doesn't even matter that uh, like we end with that little scene of of her being on TV, like that the goal for. Suzanne was to be a big deal on TV, and it ends up being Lydia as the, getting all these interviews. It doesn't even matter that it was it was the performances by themselves. Uh, it really, I think stole the, stole the scene for me. I know this is a long answer, but I just gotta say, in the Departed episode from a couple weeks back, Russell brings up something along the lines of violence and pain in a movie with twenty two deaths. Nothing shows as much pain and suffering as when Lydia is talking to Suzanne in that like room at the mall 
and and Suzanne is telling her like you don't you don't say anything you don't know anything, and she Allison Fallen cries out I I thought we were friends, it's showing pain in a way like that is, like, it's one of those like things that some of our best actors can only dream of, so where's her superlative? It's Allison Fallen. That's a great choice, and she does do a great job of just communicating. It's almost like she doesn't understand how big of a deal some of the things are, especially that end scene that you were talking about. She's like, oh, yeah, and this mm-hmm. station called, and this station called. Yeah. And it's like the gravity is lost on her, and the irony is lost on her. So she does a wonderful job. That's a great pick. I, too, went with a lady in this film, Eilina Douglas, Janice Moretta. Good choice. I just like the mistrust from the beginning she's got this shtick figured out and the disdain she just shows for Suzanne and her interview segments were the ones that I was really <laughs> leaning forward to like how is she going to trash her next how is she going to it was like watching a Maury Povich style interview of just I hate this person she's messed up my family and she was the one that was the freest speaking of all of them yeah Hidden gems. These are always fun. V, who's your hidden gem? There are a couple in these. I'm going to go really esoteric, but I think it's very funny that the guy that kills Suzanne at the end is actually played by David Cronenberg. <laughs> yes, <Yep>. it is. <laughs> what a fun little uh, morbid piece of trivia. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I just think that entire scene, it's very quick, and we touched briefly upon this, but it's it's like the first time I watched it, I was almost unsure of exactly what had just happened because I wasn't putting together the dots that his father was in the mafia. It, it didn't completely. Allegedly. Yeah, allegedly. <laughs> and so I just think that you could talk about the ending in theory, but like watching it, it's so sudden that it's, I mean, it just catches you by surprise. So maybe it's not the most hidden gem, I guess, aspect of it, but just like, it's a good hidden gem. You don't have to apologize for your hidden gem. It's a yeah. good one. A lot of people aren't going to recognize him. And I have a love-hate relationship with Mr. Cronen- Cronenberg. <laughs> His movies are just like a sine wave for me of like, intensely hate, like, intensely hate. But the lesson here is never walk off to a secluded area with a strange <laughs> man you don't know. So we are just going to share our wisdom with you. Murder is bad. Don't go in strange areas. Sex with high school students yep. is bad. You know, life yep. lessons T- at the round table. Tune in every week. Yes. <laughs> Retro Movie Roundtable, where we help you survive. Till next episode. <laughs> Dustin, who have you got for your hidden gem? There's, there's so many things that are good about this movie, uh, no matter how hidden or with the name. Uh, so I'm just going to go with a very simple answer. The teacher is the screenwriter, Buck Henry. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and I, I, I think he plays like a cool, interesting character because the, the thing that's important about him is he can put Russell in his place with a rolled up newspaper, not newspaper, magazine. And it reminds you that, and I think this needs to be reminded sometimes that like kids still, when they are in the presence of adults, can really feel like kids. And so uh, when the when the teacher's telling him, like, you're going to make it up to Miss Stone, and that's why he has to join the documentary, um, he's got a presence in the movie. Uh, and I think he did a great job with the screenwriting. So that's my hidden gem. 
Yeah, that went from zero to 11 in teacher discipline real quick. <laughs> that was a lot different than stand and deliver. He wasn't a finger man or anything. He's like, <laughs> I'm going to beat you. My hidden gem, David Cronenberg was my runner-up, but Rain Phoenix, Joaquin's older, older sister, is the girl playing the tambourine in Larry's terrible band. So we've got some siblings cast in here. The you've talked about how you love this cast. We're gonna make you do it. Who are you recasting? I'm really. <laughs> you have to. Ca- could yep. I possibly abstain from that? Nope. You cannot. No way. Um, Go recast guess... David Cronenberg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For R.L. Stein. Yes. <laughs> I mean, maybe Matt Dillon. I. It might be interesting to see a guy that's a little bit more, I don't know, imposing. I feel like Matt Dillon is like a very middle-of-the-road guy to cast for this role because he's not so pathetic that you feel like he's a doormat, but he's not so imposing that you feel like she has to kill him to get rid of him. And I think Mm -hmm. it might be a more interesting movie if you had someone that's more, um, a little bit more headstrong, but I guess half of the movie is just how much, how in service of all of Suzanne's sort of delusions he is. I don't know. I think it'd be a sort of a slightly different movie, but I also think it would be interesting if you had someone that was a little bit more um, stubborn than. Okay. All right. So like a Ray Liotta where he, he definitely looks mob connected. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was getting stuck in Italian Americans too. Like I was like, do I have to go with that? I mean, with a name like Moretto, <laughs> you kind of want. I, I put Matt LeBlanc in another movie, so I can't choose him. <laughs> You know what though? I think it's a strong choice to target Matt Dillon. Like, like he's a good, he's the best, maybe maybe one of the best targets here. Even if we don't have a name to replace him with. Yep. So who are you recasting, Dustin? For me, it is uh, the the two detectives. There's the lead detective who kind of looks like kind of looks like Jake from Brooklyn Nine Nine. Who's that SNL Hi. actor? Andy Samberg. He looks just like Andy Samberg. Yes. Uh, so we're going to replace him with Andy Samberg. No, we're not replacing him. <laughs> uh, I think I think there needs to be some star power there. I think there needs to be something there. Um, and so originally I was thinking like, what if what if we went with like Joe Montana perhaps, uh, and that would maybe divert the whole criminal minds like next twelve years of his life. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going. I was looking at Goodwill Hunting. Like maybe put Stellan Skarsgård there, but then like oh. it's an older person. <laughs> Uh, in that situation, I went kind of silly for a moment and said, "What if Joe Pesci is is the is that detective?" But I settled on Tim Roth. I would okay. like Tim Roth as the detective who has the most screen time. I just I just a little bit of a uh, little bit of more weight to that uh, cast. All right, Tim Roth, I like it. I, I'm gonna have to replace someone I love and want him in more movies, but Wayne Knight. I thought his use here was very, very odd. He's just playing a super straight character. And this is someone that I like being weaselly and just despicable. Even the Dennis Nedry in Jurassic Park. We've talked about Newman. Rat race character. I just want all of that. So I think I'd go with someone that still kind of maintains that look and gets a lot of those roles but can do more serious roles. I kind of want Steve Buscemi in here. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. Okay. 
might be odd and we might wind up complaining the same things or what about a pairing of wayne knight and steve buscemi get that camera guy out of there who we don't know (laughs) yeah Uh, poor camera guy we're uh, we're taking your 250 dollar paycheck god i love steve buscemi so much and this is as a guy who did not watch boardwalk empire but I, i love him and everything but for some reason every time i think of him the first thing that comes up is mr deeds the Adam Sandler movie where he plays crazy eyes. Mm-hmm. And no matter how much I like him in any movie, Reservoir Dogs, no matter how much I like him, the first thing that comes up to me is his quote, well, time heals all things except for these crazy eyes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So maybe not Steve Buscemi, but it, good choice. No, I like it. I think it's a good choice. So speaking of worth the shot, our best shot, V, what's your best cinematic moment of the movie? I mean, I think... Uh, we it's been brought up a few times now, but the shot where she's just in her living room and she turns and you can like just feel her going to the next level and thinking, oh, my next logical step is to kill my husband. You know, it's just <laughs> <laughs> the way the lights dim. Um, her like she's so composed in that shot, Nicole Kidman, and it's just there's no words, but you as an audience member, you just you know immediately that this is the point at which the narrative changes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a long shot too. And she's got a lot a lot to do, facial acting, you know, body acting of the it's an uncomfortable posture and the lighting, everything that's going on. That's a wonderful shot. So Dustin, what's yours? I, I had one that lasted for most of the movie, and then once I got to the, my actual ultimate choice, I had to swap it out. The one that the one that ended up being second place was when she tosses the bouquet over the bridesmaids' heads, and Janice and the other two bridesmaids don't care at yeah. all. <laughs> awesome shot. But uh, what ends up being more impactful is after the death, when the family's all at the house, she begins she sees the bright lights outside and she slow motion is walking outside to talk to the media the detective guy goes you don't have to talk to them if you don't want to but during that time the national the broadcast day has ended so the national anthem is playing the star spangled banner is playing while she's walking out to the media goal attained hey i it's the olympics time i love america i i love being an american but man, that song in the right context can really make you sick. And oh, yeah. that that scene, that shot was awesome. The Purge movies have been abusing that theme for a while. Too scary. I won't see that. Oh. <laughs> for me, it's actually after the death of Suzanne, you get this shot of Mr. Moretto as he gets a phone call. Ooh, and yeah. you're not hearing what's being said to him. And he's not really acknowledging and giving you the information. V kind of alluded to this. of We're still not quite sure what's happened yet. But you see his face and then it cuts to Mrs. Moretto. And there's no dialogue. And then it's back and you're like, without saying a single word, they've established that Suzanne is dead. And that it's confirmation. Yes, yes. these guys are in the mob. Yes, this is what happened. And it's just a great scene for me. It's, it is great. So the the best scene for our favorite plot point in acting. V, can you help us out? I, I'm actually going to go with a scene that preludes her coming back to the crime scene. 
where she's on television and she knows that her husband is currently being murdered um, at her house. <gasps> oh, yeah. And she turns around and she sort of, she wishes her husband a happy anniversary. And it's, I think, the one scene where you can sort of see some level of remorse or something, you know? And you basically get none of that in the rest of the movie, but there's some level of Maybe she's not sure if this was the best way to go about this. Hmm. And it's sort of, it's a long take and it's, it's just Nicole Kidman and it's, it's, she's playing because obviously she's still on television at this point. So she has to play it as if she knows nothing, but the facade breaks just a little bit and it's, it's a great scene. Yeah. I'd, I'd honestly block that one out because that's just... It's a great scene, but it's a horrible scene, too. Because yeah. <laughs> you're right. She does play it off to sweet, happy anniversary, honey, and everything as he's being shot. No, oh, and then you have to think, she's not dressed for just her weather report that night. She knows she'll be coming home to the scene and then potentially the media, in which she does mm-hmm. not change. So she yeah. dressed for that report to address the media after her husband dies. Yep. Thanks for making that one worse. all right what's your scene dustin it is the living room dance scene uh i I think it was the acting is it like captures the awkwardness that you want it to capture hats off to all three i really like the idea that like oh we're getting strange and dustin likes when things are getting a little strange and i and i did like this and then but the really the best acting comes from when lydia comes back from the walk and she's going up the stairs you're hearing the music upstairs. You're hearing the sounds of sex. And you, you get to see um, Alison Falland act like she doesn't know what to do. And I thought that was just so well done. So it, it's it's why it's my favorite scene. Oh, another horrible scene. I'm going to lift things up by skating over a dead body. <laughs> <laughs> it's just such a triumph knowing what Suzanne did and the relief Janice probably felt. Because... You're at a point of like, is she actually going to Bill Cosby this and oh. get out on a technicality or what? And yeah. you get Season of the Witch. You They don't even acknowledge, does Janet? No, I, I firmly believe absolutely. Like her dad probably went and said right there. That she's just having a great time. It's the end scene. It's kind of almost a throwaway, but I loved it. It's a good one. Yeah. Roll credits. As, as that's going on. I watched that whole credit. I watched the ice skating of that because uh, I didn't want the movie to be over. I was still experiencing it. And it's a great song. Uh, best wardrobe or makeup moment. V, we talked a lot about the wardrobe here. It has to be her outfit when she first goes to the school to talk about her little project. It's so gauche. It's so inappropriate. <laughs> yes. It's, it's very it's, short. It's like an eyesore with the patterns, the color. It's... It doesn't suit her skin tone at all either. Yeah. It's just it's like pale lemon yellow. But what's the design on it? I remember it being something strange, like the pattern. It's like a weird sort of like squiggly sort of floral. It's very bizarre. I'm not exactly sure what it's supposed to be. It, I remember it being something so strange, like telephones or maybe like like. Uh, TV screens. Like it is. It is weird shapes. But sorry to interrupt. Yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah, I'm just looking at it right now. It just seems to be like just 
like circles with dots in them it, it's very bizarre um <laughs> and it's just completely unflattering but obviously she thinks that she looks great and you can tell just for the way she's in that outfit it's it truly just encapsulates the character in every sense to me just absolutely full of herself and has having no idea what what is actually appropriate oh that's great dustin how about you best wardrobe yeah that outfit would be outrageous even for gail weathers that's a that's <laughs> that's an that's a that's nuts as far i actually have a wardrobe and a makeup moment i will say the uh nicole kidman's eye makeup throughout the movie drove me crazy as, as I, I didn't care for it there's some moments where it's more emotional and like it's smeared or it's it's kind of more like shadow as opposed to color that looks that looks good but i will say as far as makeup her lipstick there there's almost like a shade of and i'm not, I'm not saying i was sitting too close to the tv but it almost as if there's two tones going on and not just stick and like lip liner but it almost seems like like it it was a really well done thing that was that looked great all movie. The the eye makeup was an eyesore to me. But as far as the wardrobe moment, the it's the moment that she distracts the keynote speaker George Segal. She comes in wearing that floral dress with that bright yellow hat. Mm-hmm. Um if I were giving that speech and that walked in, I think I would stumble over my words too. Um so while there's a lot of awesome wardrobe in that, that's probably the like maybe most memorable scene because it it shows you that that distracts it was part of her plan to get attention that way i think for me and people are going to lean one way like think one one thing when i say it but uh, stay stay with me when she's doing the montage of changing in front of lydia and she's trying on the underwear and the bras oh yeah you're gonna be like oh yeah attractive woman of course he picks that it's not about that although it is a literal wardrobe like she goes through a lot of changes here but Lydia says, uh, your husband will really like those. And she stops in the middle of it. She's like, yeah. Yeah. My husband. My husband. <laughs> yeah. And it's just such a terrible thing. Like, she's doing this entire thing for a high school kid. And Lydia's there. It's got to be awkward for her. And yeah. So that was a literal wardrobe changing moment throughout the entire scene. So change one thing. We know you love this movie, V, but what are you changing? Maybe I'll cheat a little bit and I'll change the fact that I didn't get any Oscar nominations. All right, that's fair. Oh, you're changing one thing about the real world. <laughs> no, that's and fair. now we have unleashed the power of this podcast. We are going back. <laughs> we are actually making these recasts and we are giving awards 25 years later. I love that. Yeah, I think that's generally what I would change. I mean, Nicole Kidman wins the Golden Globe for this, so she was definitely in the running. Unfortunately, not uh, could not break through that Oscar race, but yeah, I, that's what I'm sticking with. Okay. All right, Dustin, what's your change one thing? I think the mafia ending could have been done better. Uh, that's the general answer. It seemed rushed. There's very little dialogue. The what, what you described, the scene with the phone call and the silent nod of recognition that the job is done, that's awesome. The, the It seemed clunky. The, the, the point of it, I think, was to show that she's so naive to bring a, a bag full of videotapes and stop her car in the middle of the road on the, by the bridge and walk 
down a snowy embankment? Like, like clearly it's showing that, like, all right, even though she finished the plot, like, like her dastardly plot, uh, like, even though that's done, she's still kind of daft and decides to follow this person down to an icy, you know, frozen lake. So it's, uh, I, I just, I think I can see what was trying to be done, but I just think it was done, uh, either purposefully poorly or all, all the audience really needed was to know that it doesn't end up well for her. Okay. You wanted more scenes in the restaurant with the family. I could have seen that. Yeah. Or, or give Cronenberg like, like, I don't know. Quit trying to make me come up with like more violent things, Chad. (laughs) There's nothing violent about dinner with the family. And I'm making the little Italian hand (laughs) gestures over spaghetti. (laughs) We can, we can do innuendos here for me. Dustin liked this scene. V, it seems like you may like the the eye acting. Dustin alluded to it, but I don't like the Sweet Home Alabama dancing scene. It was just odd. I wasn't a fan of it, and I think you could cut that scene entirely and still have the same movie. Other than the throwaway line later of Joaquin Phoenix saying, I have to masturbate every time it rains, and now you have context <laughs> for that, which I didn't really need. He's just a creepy dude. I thought the scene was odd. I, I, the the thing it does, I think, is it shows how how like the extremes of how like on or off she can switch between these personas. Uh, but I I think I might agree that it, it's maybe unnecessary. The conversation of manipulation that happens in the in the in the car, yeah, I think, is important. But the the dancing aspect of it is, I think, I might agree with you there. Yeah, that song has been ruined by many different people in many I different hate that ways. I, yeah. I'm looking at you, Kid Rock, for ruining two songs simultaneously with Werewolves of London and this song. You don't have to point out a particular song to say that Kid Rock has ruined things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And I'm not, apolo- I'm not apologizing to Laker fans, and I'm not apologizing to Kid Rock fans. Sorry. Yes, yes. no. Now the entire state of Michigan will stop listening to us. No, no. Your state looks like a hand. Oh, poor oh no. I, I gotta I gotta rein it in. I'm sorry. Yes. Right. That's a retro underscore round table. <laughs> I'm right into Dustin. So best best quote, V. I mean, I think the one quote that just basically sums up the entire movie, it's it's nice to live in a country where life liberty and the rest of it still. And the rest something. of it. Yes, <laughs> it's a good yeah. one. That is a great one, Dustin. There are so many. This one for me though is when Lydia shows up at the house, and this is after the killing has happened, and uh, she says that Jimmy's here. It's like what? He's here? Yeah. He says that he needs to see you, and that he's dying of love. <laughs> 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 That's a feeling that i've had that's a feeling that's that teenagers have but hearing it come from lydia's voice was was so great so that's my that's my choice that is a funny one i think for mine i've got to go with something that's still relevant today it captures why people are taking pictures of their food why we can't leave our screens down when a concert was going on or fireworks we're going to a fireworks show today no one's recording fireworks, and then a year later, be like, "Let's watch the fireworks show." For... <laughs> so, yep, 
Suzanne says, what's the point of doing anything worthwhile if nobody's watching? And mm. that is just the absolute stab to the heart satire of all the ridiculousness that's going on. It's a good one. So, V, we've had a lot of fun. We want to give you one last chance to plug your podcast. Can you tell us uh, where's her Oscar podcast? Where can we get it? When can we listen to you? Where's her Oscar is basically wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Where's Her Oscar, no apostrophe. We release an episode weekly. And I, I said before, we're finishing up our Amy Adams season. So we'll be doing like a little end episode going through everything, all the movies that we covered. Yeah. Uh, if you like sort of the Oscars, if you like talking about underrated movies, underrated performances, underrated actresses, it's definitely the podcast for you. Um, yeah, we just have a lot of fun with it. All right. We're, we're going to get into our ratings from zero to five stars, half star increments. V, what do you rate? 1995's To Die For. I mean, I doubt every anyone's going to be surprised, but I, I'm going to have to, get, have to give it five stars. I just think, you know, it's a movie that I think isn't that talked about. It's It hasn't really built a cult following um, in the way a lot of other satires from the 90s have, but it's still, I think it's still relevant as we, you know, as social media becomes more and more a part of our lives and just the idea of fame and power and ambition it's just in some ways it has the makings of like a classic movie um it, it feels like an evergreen narrative and it's like some of the best performances from people that are very strong performers yeah i think you're right there dustin how about you no i i think you're right about all the all the things that you've said this is a four-star movie for me uh i think it accomplishes what it sets out to do very well and that's really cool when you don't know what that was going to be. And so the, um, the journey of where you get to that truly the, the plot is maybe the last in terms of the important, cool things about the viewing experience. Very good. I, I do think the ending was rushed or it didn't meet the same high standard that the rest of the movie met. I think there's something to be said about the story not the story. There's something to be said about what holds up, and then there are certain things that I think certainly do not, but we didn't talk about. Um, there's not time now to talk about them, but I, I just think some things, I'm not going to go so far as to say problematic, but uh, this this is still very good, worth your time to see, but it, it doesn't it doesn't land among the stars like some of my other like some of the other things we've we've watched on this. I'm right there with you on a four star movie, awesome acting. I enjoyed the plot. I enjoyed the trip along the plot. It's just one of those movies I don't know that I particularly ever want to see again because it's so uncomfortable for me. There's so much just, ah, you're taking advantage of these downtrodden kids and there's horrible things happening to the kids. It's a great movie that I recommend checking out. And I, I agree with V. I think this could be a cult movie. It probably should be considering it was finishing behind tales from the crypt dark night come on <laughs> yeah well if if, this, if we were asked to rate nicole kidman's performance it's a five and a half out of five yeah it's, it's an 11 out of 10 it's uh platinum stars but or if we're rating some of the performances they're as high as you can get but overall yeah I'm, i don't want to take anything away from nicole here nicole uh <laughs> but yeah the movie is for yeah yeah 
Yep. Sorry to interrupt. Absolutely. And speaking of movies, Dustin, do you want to help me pick a movie for next time? Oh, yeah. We're going to be going a little less highbrow here. We're going to be going into the Star Trek universe. So option number one, Star Trek VI from 1991, The Undiscovered Country. On the eve of retirement, Kirk and McCoy are charged with assassinating the Klingon High Chancellor, and they are imprisoned. The Enterprise crew must help them escape to thwart a conspiracy aimed at sabotaging the last best hope for peace. Option two, Star Trek First Contact from 1996. The Borg travel back in time intent on preventing Earth's first, first contact with an alien species. Captain Picard and his crew pursue them to ensure the Zephram Cochran makes his maiden flight reaching warp speed. Star Trek from 2009, this is the remake. The brash James T. Kirk tries to live up to his father's legacy with Mr. Spock keeping him in check as a vengeful Romulan from the future creates black holes to destroy the Federation planets one planet at a time. Hmm. But there's only so many movies that get six sequels. <laughs> and so what I'm going to go with is if we're not doing Land Before Time 6, we got to do Star Trek 6. Option one. Yes, or the Beethoven series, which has an absurd, or the Air Buds. All right, Star Trek. Beethoven? Okay, yeah, I know that guy. Yes, Star Trek Six, The Undiscovered Country. So tune in a couple weeks, it'll be up. Thank you, all the lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Thank you, V, for joining us. We invite everyone to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, those reviews and subscriptions really help others find our show. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro. Email us at retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun, but it's not free, so we invite you to support the show at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions are much appreciated and go towards making the show better for you listeners. It also makes us more money. As always, thanks for listening. Be good to each other and watch more movies. Dustin? Cookies need love like everything does.